0: Section 1 of the Thirty Thousand Dollar Bequest and Other Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Thirty Thousand Dollar Bequest and Other Stories by Mark Twain. Section 1 The Thirty Thousand Dollar Bequest. Part 1 Chapter 1 Lakeside was a pleasant little town of five or six thousand inhabitants, and a rather pretty one, too, as far as towns go in the far west. It had church accommodations for thirty-five thousand, which is the way of the far west and the south, where everybody is religious, and where each of the Protestant sects is represented and has a plant of its own. Rank was unknown in Lakeside, unconfessed anyway. Everybody knew everybody and his dog, and a sociable friendliness was the prevailing atmosphere. Saladin Foster was a bookkeeper in the principal store, and the only high-salaried man of his profession in Lakeside. He was thirty-five years old now. He had served that store for fourteen years. He had begun in his marriage week at four hundred dollars a year, and had climbed steadily up a hundred dollars a year for four years. From that time forth his wage had remained eight hundred, a handsome figure indeed, and everybody conceded that he was worth it. His wife Electra was a capable helpmeet, although like himself, a dreamer of dreams and a private dabbler in romance. The first thing she did after her marriage, child as she was, aged only nineteen, was to buy an acre of ground on the edge of the town and pay down the cash for it, twenty-five dollars, all her fortune. Saladin had less by fifteen. She instituted a vegetable garden there, got it farmed on shares by the nearest neighbor, and made it pay her a hundred percent a year. Out of Saladin's first year's wage, she put thirty dollars in the savings bank, sixty out of his second, a hundred out of his third, a hundred and fifty out of his fourth. His wage went to eight hundred a year then, and meantime two children had arrived and increased the expenses but she banked two hundred a year from the salary nevertheless thenceforth. When she had been married seven years, she built and furnished a pretty and comfortable two-thousand-dollar house in the midst of her garden acre, paid half of the money down, and moved her family in. Seven years later she was out of debt and had several hundred dollars out earning its living. Earning it by the rise in landed estate, for she had long ago bought another acre or two and sold the most of it at a profit to pleasant people who were willing to build and would be good neighbors and furnish a general comradeship for her and her growing family she had an independent income from safe investments of about a hundred dollars a year her children were growing in years and grace and she was a pleased and happy woman happy in her husband happy in her children AND THE HUSBAND AND THE CHILDREN WERE HAPPY IN HER. IT IS AT THIS POINT THAT THIS HISTORY BEGINS. THE YOUNGEST GIRL, Clytemnestra, CALLED CLIDY FOR SHORT, WAS ELEVEN. HER SISTER, GWENDOLYN, CALLED GWEN FOR SHORT, WAS THIRTEEN. NICE GIRLS AND COMELY. THE NAMES BETRAY THE LATENT ROMANCE TINGE IN THE PARENTAL BLOOD. THE PARENTS' NAMES INDICATE THAT THE TINGE WAS AN INHERITANCE. It was an affectionate family, hence all four of its members had pet names, Saladin's was a curious and unsexing one, Sally, and so was Electra's, Alec. All day long Sally was a good and diligent bookkeeper and salesman, all day long Alec was a good and faithful mother and housewife, and thoughtful and calculating businesswoman, but in the cozy living room at night they put the plodding world away, and lived in another and a fairer reading romances to each other, dreaming dreams, comrading with kings and princes and stately lords and ladies in the flash and stir and splendor of noble palaces and grim and ancient castles. Chapter 2 Now came great news, stunning news, joyous news in fact. It came from a neighboring state, where the family's only surviving relative lived. It was Sally's relative, a sort of vague and indefinite uncle or second or third cousin, by the name of Tilbury Foster, seventy and a bachelor, reputed well off and corresponding sour and crusty. Sally had tried to make up to him once by letter in a bygone time, and had not made that mistake again. Tilbury now wrote to Sally, saying he should shortly die, and should leave him thirty thousand dollars cash, not for love, but because money had given him most of his troubles and exasperations and he wished to place it where there was good hope that it would continue its malignant work the bequest would be found in his will and would be paid over provided that sally should be able to prove to the executors that he had taken no notice of the gift by spoken word or by letter had made no inquiries concerning the moribund's progress toward the everlasting tropics and had not attended the funeral. As soon as Alec had partially recovered from the tremendous emotions created by the letter, she sent to the relative's habitat and subscribed for the local paper. Man and wife entered into a solemn compact now, to never mention the great news to anyone while the relative lived, lest some ignorant person carry the fact to the deathbed and distort it and make it appear that they were disobediently thankful for the bequest, and just the same as confessing it, and publishing it, right in the face of the Prohibition. For the rest of the day Sally made havoc and confusion with his books, and Alec could not keep her mind on her affairs, not even take up a flower-pot or book or a stick of wood, without forgetting what she had intended to do with it, for both were dreaming. Thirty thousand dollars! All day long the music of those inspiring words sang through those people's heads. From his marriage day forth, Alec's grip had been upon the purse, and Sally had seldom known what it was to be privileged to squander a dime on non-necessities. Thirty thousand dollars! The song went on and on, a vast sum, an unthinkable sum. All day long Alec was absorbed in planning how to invest it, sally in planning how to spend it there was no romance reading that night the children took themselves away early for their parents were silent distraught and strangely unentertaining the good-night kisses might as well have been impressed upon vacancy for all the response they got the parents were not aware of the kisses and the children had been gone an hour before their absence was noticed Two pencils had been busy during that hour, note-making, in the way of plans. It was Sally who broke the stillness at last. He said with exultation, "'Ah, it'll be grand, Alec. Out of the first thousand we'll have a horse and a buggy for summer, and a cutter and a skin lap-rope for winter.' Alec responded with decision and composure, "'Out of the capital? Nothing of the kind. Not if it was a million.' Sally was deeply disappointed. The glow went out of his face. Oh, Alec, he said reproachfully, we've always worked so hard and been so scrimped, and now that we are rich, it does seem... He did not finish, for he saw her eye soften. His supplication had touched her. She said, with gentle persuasiveness, We must not spend the capital, dear. It would not be wise. Out of the income from it... "'That will answer, that will answer, Alec, how dear and good you are. "'There will be a noble income, and if we can spend that—' "'Not all of it, dear, not all of it, but you can spend a part of it. "'That is, a reasonable part. "'But the whole of the capital, every penny of it, must be put right to work and kept at it. "'You see the reasonableness of that, don't you?' "'Why, yes, yes, of course, but we'll have to wait so long.' Six months before the first interest falls due. Yes, maybe longer. Longer, Alec? Why? Don't they pay half yearly? That kind of investment, yes, but I shan't invest in that way. What way, then? For big returns. Big, that's good. Go on, Alec, what is it? Coal, the new mines, canal, I mean to put in ten thousand, ground floor, When we organize, we'll get three shares for one. By George, but it sounds good, Alec. Then the shares will be worth how much and when? About a year. They'll pay ten percent half yearly and be worth thirty thousand. I know all about it. The advertisement is in the Cincinnati paper here. Land thirty thousand for ten in a year. Let's jam in the whole capital and pull out ninety. I'll write and subscribe right now. Tomorrow it may be too late. He was flying to the writing desk, but Alec stopped him and put him back in his chair. She said, Don't lose your head so. We mustn't subscribe until we've got the money. Don't you know that? Sally's excitement went down a degree or two, but he was not wholly appeased. Why, Alec, we'll have it, you know, and so soon, too. "'He's probably out of his troubles before this. "'It's a hundred to nothing. "'He's selecting his brimstone shovel this very minute. "'Now I think,' Alec shuddered and said, "'How can you, Sally? "'Don't talk in that way. "'It is perfectly scandalous.' "'Oh, well, make it a halo if you like. "'I don't care for his outfit. "'I was only just talking. "'Can't you let a person talk?' "'But why should you want to talk in that dreadful way?' "'How would you like to have people talk so about you, and you not cold yet?' "'Not likely to be, for one while, I reckon, "'if my last act was giving away money for the sake of doing somebody a harm with it. "'But never mind about Tilbury, Alec. Let's talk about something worldly. "'It does seem to me that that mine is a place for the whole thirty. "'What's the objection?' "'All the eggs in one basket. That's the objection.' "'All right, if you say so. "'What about the other twenty? "'What do you mean to do with that?' "'There is no hurry. "'I am going to look around before I do anything with it.' "'All right, if your mind's made up,' sighed Sally. "'He was deep in thought a while, then he said, "'There'll be twenty thousand profit coming from the ten a year from now. "'We can spend that, can we, Alec?' "'Alec shook her head. "'No, dear,' she said. It won't sell high till we've had the first semi-annual dividend. You can spend part of that. Shucks, only that, and a whole year to wait. Confound it, I... Oh, do be patient. It might even be declared in three months. It's quite within the possibilities. Oh, jolly, oh, thanks. And Sally jumped up and kissed his wife in gratitude. It'll be three thousand, three whole thousand. "'How much of it can we spend, Alec? Make it liberal! "'Do, dear, that's a good fellow!' Alec was pleased, so pleased that she yielded to the pressure and conceded a sum which her judgment told her was a foolish extravagance, a thousand dollars. Sally kissed her half a dozen times, and even in that way could not express all his joy and thankfulness. This new access of gratitude and affection carried Alec quite beyond the bounds of prudence, and before she could restrain herself, she had made her darling another grant, a couple of thousand out of the fifty or sixty which she meant to clear within a year of the twenty which still remained of the bequest. The happy tears sprang to Sally's eyes, and he said, "'Oh, I want to hug you,' and he did it. Then he got his notes and sat down, and began to check off, for first purchase, the luxuries which he should earliest wish to secure.' Horse, buggy, cutter, lap robe, patent leathers, dog, plug hat, church pew, stem winder, new teeth. Say, Alec. Well? Ciphering away, aren't you? That's right. Have you got the twenty thousand invested yet? No, there's no hurry about that. I must look around first and think. But you were ciphering. What's it about?' Why, I have to find work for the 30,000 that comes out of the coal, haven't I? Scott, what a head! I never thought of that. How are you getting along? Where have you arrived? Not very far, two years or three. I've turned it over twice, once in oil and once in wheat. Why, Alec, that's splendid. How does it aggregate? I think, well, to be on the safe side, about a 180,000 clear though it will probably be more. "'My, isn't it wonderful? My gracious, luck has come our way at last, after all the hard sledding, Alec.' "'Well?' "'I'm going to cash in a whole three hundred on the missionaries. What real right have we care for expenses?' "'You couldn't do a nobler thing, dear, and it's just like your generous nature, you unselfish boy.' The praise made Sally poignantly happy, but he was fair and just enough to say that it was rightly due to Alec rather than to himself, since but for her he should never have had the money. Then they went up to bed, and in their delirium of bliss they forgot and left the candle burning in the parlor. They did not remember until they were undressed, then Sally was for letting it burn. He said they could afford it if it was a thousand. "'but Alec went down and put it out. "'A good job, too, for on her way back "'she hit on a scheme that would turn the hundred and eighty thousand "'into half a million before it had had time to get cold. "'Chapter Three "'The little newspaper which Alec had subscribed for "'was a Thursday sheet. "'It would make the trip of five hundred miles from Tilbury's village "'and arrive on Saturday. "'Tilbury's letter had started on Friday, more than a day too late for the benefactor to die and get into that week's issue, but in plenty of time to make connection for the next output. Thus the fosters had to wait almost a complete week to find out whether anything of a satisfactory nature had happened to him or not. It was a long, long week, and the strain was a heavy one. The pair could hardly have borne it if their minds had not had the relief of wholesome diversion. We have seen that they had that. The woman was piling up fortunes right along. The man was spending them, spending all his wife could give him a chance at, at any rate. At last the Saturday came, and the weekly Sagamore arrived. Mrs. Eversley Bennett was present. She was the Presbyterian parson's wife, and was working the Fosters for a charity. Talk now died a sudden death on the Foster side. Mrs. Bennet presently discovered that her hosts were not hearing a word she was saying, so she got up, wondering and indignant, and went away. The moment she was out of the house, Alec eagerly tore the wrapper from the paper, and her eyes and Sally's swept the columns for the death notices. Disappointment! Tilbury was not anywhere mentioned. Alec was a Christian from the cradle, and duty and the force of habit required her to go through the motions— she pulled herself together and said, with a pious two-percent trade joyousness, "'Let us be humbly thankful that he has been spared, and—' "'Damn his treacherous hide! I wish—' "'Sally, for shame!' "'I don't care,' retorted the angry man. "'It's the way you feel, and if you weren't so immorally pious, you'd be honest and say so.' Alex said, with wounded dignity— I do not see how you can say such unkind and unjust things. There is no such thing as immoral piety. Sally felt a pang, but tried to conceal it under a shuffling attempt to save his case by changing the form of it, as if changing the form while retaining the juice could deceive the expert he was trying to placate. He said, I didn't mean so bad as that, Alec. I didn't really mean immoral piety. I only meant, meant well, conventional piety, you know, er, shop piety, the, the, why, you know what I mean, Alec, the, well, where you put up that plated article and play it for solid, you know, without intending anything improper, but just out of trade habit, ancient policy, petrified custom, loyalty to, to hang it, I can't find the right words, but you know what I mean, Alec, and that there isn't any harm in it. "'I'll try again. You see, it's this way. If a person—' "'You have said quite enough,' said Alec, coldly. "'Let the subject be dropped.' "'I'm willing,' fervently responded Sally, "'wiping the sweat from his forehead and looking the thankfulness he had no words for. "'Then musingly he apologized to himself. "'I certainly held threes. I know it. But I drew and didn't fill.' "'That's where I'm so often weak in the game. "'If I had stood pat, but I didn't. "'I never do. "'I don't know enough.' "'Confessedly defeated, "'he was properly tame now and subdued. "'Alec forgave him with her eyes. "'The grand interest, the supreme interest, "'came instantly to the front again. "'Nothing could keep it in the background "'many minutes on a stretch. "'The couple took up the puzzle "'of the absence of Tilbury's death notice.' they discussed it every which way more or less hopefully but they had to finish where they began and concede that the only really sane explanation of the absence of the notice must be and without a doubt was that tilbury was not dead there was something sad about it something even a little unfair maybe but there it was and had to be put up with they were agreed as to that to sally it seemed a strangely inscrutable dispensation more inscrutable than usual he thought one of the most unnecessary inscrutable he could call to mind in fact and said so with some feeling but if he was hoping to draw alec he failed she reserved her opinion if she had one she had not the habit of taking injudicious risks in any market worldly or other the pair must wait for next week's paper tilbury had evidently postponed That was their thought and their decision. So they put the subject away and went about their affairs again with as good heart as they could. Now, if they had but known it, they had been wronging Tilbury all the time. Tilbury had kept faith, kept it to the letter. He was dead. He had died to schedule. He was dead more than four days now and used to it. Entirely dead, perfectly dead, as dead as any other new person in the cemetery, Dead in abundant time to get into that week's sagamore too and only shut out by an accident an accident which could not happen to a metropolitan journal but which happens easily to a poor little village rag like the sagamore on this occasion just as the editorial page was being locked up a gratis quart of strawberry ice-water arrived from hostetter's ladies and gents ice-cream parlors and the stick full of rather chilly regret over tilbury's translation got crowded out to make room for the editor's frantic gratitude on its way to the standing galley tilbury's notice got pied otherwise it would have gone into some future edition. for weekly sagamores do not waste live matter and in their galleys live matter is immortal unless a pie accident intervenes but a thing that gets pied is dead and for such there is no resurrection its chance of seeing print is gone for ever and ever And so, let Tilbury like it or not, let him rave in his grave to his fill, no matter. No mention of his death would ever see the light in the weekly Sagamore. CHAPTER Four. Five weeks drifted tediously along. The Sagamore arrived regularly on the Saturdays, but never once contained a mention of Tilbury Foster. Sally's patience broke down at this point, and he said resentfully, "'Damn his livers, he's immortal!' Alec gave him a very severe rebuke and added with icy solemnity, How would you feel if you were suddenly cut out just after such an awful remark had escaped out of you? Without sufficient reflection, Sally responded, I'd feel I was lucky I hadn't got caught with it in me. Pride had forced him to say something, and as he could not think of any rational thing to say, he flung that out. Then he stole a base, as he called it that is, slipped from the presence to keep from being braided in his wife's discussion mortar. Six months came and went. The Sagamore was still silent about Tilbury. Meantime, Sally had several times thrown out a feeler, that is, a hint that he would like to know. Alec had ignored the hints. Sally now resolved to brace up and risk a frontal attack, so he squarely proposed to disguise himself and go to Tilbury's village and surreptitiously find out as to the prospects. Alec put her foot on the dangerous project with energy and decision. She said, "'What can you be thinking of? You do keep my hands full. You have to be watched all the time, like a little child, to keep you from walking into the fire. You'll stay right where you are.' "'Why, Alec, I could do it and not be found out. I'm certain of it.' "'Sally Foster, don't you know you would have to inquire around?' "'Of course, but what of it? Nobody would suspect who I was.' "'Oh, listen to the man. Some day you've got to prove to the executors that you never inquired. What then?' He had forgotten that detail. He didn't reply. There wasn't anything to say. Alec added, "'Now then, drop that notion out of your mind and don't ever meddle with it again.' "'Tilbury set that trap for you. Don't you know it's a trap? "'He is on the watch and fully expecting you to blunder into it. "'Well, he is going to be disappointed, at least while I am on deck. "'Sally!' "'Well?' "'As long as you live, if it's a hundred years, don't you ever make an inquiry. Promise?' "'All right,' with a sigh and reluctantly. "'Then Alec softened and said,' "'Don't be impatient. We are prospering. We can wait. There is no hurry. Our small dead certain income increases all the time. And as to futures, I have not made a mistake yet. They are piling up by the thousands and tens of thousands. There is not another family in the state with such prospects as ours. Already we are beginning to roll in eventual wealth. You know that, don't you?' "'Yes, Alec, it's certainly so.' then be grateful for what God is doing for us, and stop worrying. You do not believe we could have achieved these prodigious results without his special help and guidance, do you? Hesitatingly, No, I suppose not. Then, with feeling and admiration, and yet, when it comes to judiciousness in watering a stock, or putting up a hand to skin Wall Street, I don't give in that you need any outside amateur help, if I do wish I oh do shut up i know you do not mean any harm or any irreverence poor boy but you can't seem to open your mouth without letting out things to make a person shudder you keep me in constant dread for you and for all of us once i had no fear of the thunder but now when i hear it i her voice broke and she began to cry and could not finish the sight of this smote sally to the heart and he took her in his arms, and petted her, and comforted her, and promised better conduct, and upbraided himself, and remorsefully pleaded for forgiveness. And he was in earnest, and sorry for what he had done, and ready for any sacrifice that could make up for it. And so, in privacy, he thought long and deeply over the matter, resolving to do what should seem best. It was easy to promise reform, Indeed, he had already promised it. But would that do any real good, any permanent good? No, it would be but temporary. He knew his weakness, and confessed it to himself with sorrow. He could not keep the promise. Something surer and better must be devised, and he devised it. At cost of precious money, which he had long been saving up, shilling by shilling, he put a lightning-rod on the house. At a subsequent time he relapsed. What miracles habit can do, and how quickly and how easily habits are acquired, both trifling habits and habits which profoundly change us. If by accident we wake at two in the morning a couple of nights in succession, we have need to be uneasy, for another repetition can turn the accident into a habit, and a month's dallying with whiskey, but we all know these commonplace facts. The castle-building habit, the day-dreaming habit, how it grows! What a luxury it becomes! How we fly to its enchantments at every idle moment! How we revel in them, steep our souls in them, intoxicate ourselves with their beguiling fantasies! Oh, yes, and how soon and how easily our dream life and our material life become so intermingled and so fused together that we can't quite tell which is which any more! By and by, Alex subscribed to a Chicago Daily and for the Wall Street Pointer. With a single eye to finance, she studied these as diligently all the week as she studied her Bible Sundays. Sally was lost in admiration to note with what swift and sure strides her genius and judgment developed and expanded in the forecasting and handling of the securities of both the material and spiritual markets. He was proud of her nerve and daring in exploiting worldly stocks, and just as proud of her conservative caution in working her spiritual deals. He noted that she never lost her head in either case, that with a splendid courage she often went short on worldly futures, but heedfully drew the line there. She was always long on the others. Her policy was quite sane and simple, as she explained it to him, What she put into earthly futures was for speculation, what she put into spiritual futures was for investment. She was willing to go into the one on a margin and take chances, but in the case of the other, margin her no margins. She wanted to cash in a hundred cents per dollar's worth and have the stock transferred on the books. It took but a very few months to educate Alec's imagination and Sally's. Each day's training added something to the spread and effectiveness of the two machines. As a consequence, Alec made imaginary money much faster than at first she had dreamed of making it, and Sally's competency in spending the overflow of it kept pace with the strain put upon it right along. In the beginning, Alec had given the coal speculation a twelve-month in which to materialize, and had been loath to grant that this term might possibly be shortened by nine months. But that was the feeble work, the nursery work, of a financial fancy that had had no teaching, no experience, no practice. These aids soon came, then that nine months vanished, and the imaginary ten thousand dollar investment came marching home with three hundred per cent profit on its back. It was a great day for the pair of fosters. They were speechless for joy, also speechless for another reason. After much watching of the market, Alec had lately, with fear and trembling, made her first flyer on a margin, using the remaining twenty thousand of the bequest in this risk. In her mind's eye she had seen it climb, point by point, always with a chance that the market would break, until at last her anxieties were too great for further endurance, she being new to the margin business and unhardened as yet, and she gave her imaginary broker an imaginary order by imaginary telegraph to sell. She said $40,000 profit was enough. The sale was made on the very day that the Coal Venture had returned with its rich freight. As I have said, the couple were speechless, they sat dazed and blissful that night, trying to realize that they were actually worth a $100,000 in clean imaginary cash, yet so it was. It was the last time that ever Alec was afraid of a margin, at least afraid enough to let it break her sleep and pale her cheek, to the extent that this first experience in that line had done. Indeed, it was a memorable night. Gradually, the realization that they were rich sank securely home in the minds of the pair. Then they began to place the money. If we could have looked out through the eyes of these dreamers, we would have seen their tidy little wooden house disappear, and two-story brick with a cast-iron fence in front of it take its place. We should have seen a three-globed gas chandelier grow down from the parlor ceiling. We should have seen the homely rag carpet turn to noble Brussels a dollar and a half a yard. We should have seen the plebeian fireplace vanish away and a recherché big base burner with isinglass windows take position and spread awe around. And we should have seen other things, too, among them the buggy, the lap robe, the stovepipe hat, and so on. From that time forth, although the daughters and the neighbors saw only the same old wooden house there, it was a two-story brick to Alec and Sally, and not a night went by that Alec did not worry about the imaginary gas bills, and get for all comfort Sally's reckless retort, What of it? We can afford it. Before the couple went to bed, that first night that they were rich, they had decided that they must celebrate. They must give a party. That was the idea. But how to explain it to the daughters and the neighbors? They could not expose the fact that they were rich. Sally was willing, even anxious, to do it. But Alec kept her head and would not allow it. She said that although the money was as good as in, it would be as well to wait until it was actually in. On that policy she took her stand and would not budge. The great secret must be kept, she said, kept from the daughters and everybody else. The pair were puzzled. They must celebrate. They were determined to celebrate. But since the secret must be kept, what could they celebrate? No birthdays were due for three months. Tilbury wasn't available. Evidently he was going to live forever. What the nation could they celebrate? That was Sally's way of putting it. And he was getting impatient, too, and harassed. But at last he hit it, just by sheer inspiration as it seemed to him, and all their troubles were gone in a moment. They would celebrate the discovery of America, a splendid idea. Alec was almost too proud of Sally for words. She said she never would have thought of it. But Sally, although he was bursting with delight in the compliment and with wonder at himself, tried not to let on, and said it wasn't really anything, anybody could have done it whereat alec with a prideful toss of her happy head said oh certainly anybody could oh anybody hosanna dilkins for instance or maybe edelbert peanut oh dear yes well i'd like to see them try it that's all dear me says if they could think of the discovery of a forty-acre island it's more than i believe they could and as for the whole continent why sally foster you know perfectly well it would strain the livers and lights out of them, and then they couldn't. The dear woman, she knew he had talent, and if affection made her overestimate the size of it a little, surely it was a sweet and gentle crime, and forgivable for its source's sake. End of the thirty thousand dollar bequest, part one, recorded by Tricia G.